Hey, let me just uh, introduce my good friend Miriam. Miriam Fisher is here, going to be bringing the message this morning. Miriam is a regular member at Grace Vineyard Beach Campus, the Grace Vineyard Church out of Beach Campus, uh, and but also I've you know, we've known Miriam for a long time, uh, and Miriam's a good friend of ours. We also work together at Laidlaw College, where Miriam is the Christchurch lead for the School of Education, where they train teachers and things like that. Um, so, uh, thrilled to have you with us. Come, come, come on up, come on up, Miriam, and uh, and thrilled to have you with us this morning. Miriam uh, not only does those things, but is a deeply godly person who loves the Lord, who loves His Word, who has studied deeply. Uh, and allows his word to shape and form who she is, and then uses. I think God uses her in, in pretty remarkable ways to express and share that with others. So we have the the blessing of being able to receive from that this morning, and uh, and so why don't you join with me as we pray uh, for Miriam and pray for the message, and uh, we'll be underway. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Miriam. We thank you for who she is. And who she is. We thank you for the ways that you have prepared her, that you have gifted her, for the ways that uh, you are working in and through her. Lord, we ask a special anointing on her for today as she brings your word to us. Would you speak and minister through her? Would, would you minister the word of God to us today? That it would speak clearly, that it would encourage and strengthen and grow us all in faith, that we might become better followers of you, Jesus. We ask this in the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus, our Lord. And we all said together, amen, amen. Thanks, Miriam. Hopefully your slides will work. Gifted. So it's my pleasure to warmly greet you this morning. I'm Miriam. I hark mainly from Otatahi here in Christchurch and from Tauranga and a few other places in between. And I just wanted to greet you warmly in this season, the season of the birth of Christ. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always strange to say thank you when you had no choice about having me. But here you are. You came to church anyway, so thank you for coming to church this morning. Uh, this morning, Winkler asked me if I would come, and he said, which, which one, you know? And I was like, oh, joy. And I must confess that um, I am a wild extrovert, and my top strength is positivity. So it feels a little bit unfair to have someone like me talk about joy because it's actually like a bouncy ball. I just kind of my natural disposition. But I actually want to speak about a joy this morning that is much, much bigger and much more beautiful than just an extrovert with positivity as their top strength. Okay. In this season of Christmas, I feel like we put a lot of pressure on Christmas. 
Uh, we put a lot of pressure on things like food and gifts and behavior and everyone looking good. When my children were small, I have two sons, I used to make them matching pajamas that they opened on Christmas Eve because it meant on Christmas Day when we were all sitting around eating marshmallow Santas in our pajamas, they would look clean. And it would be the only time all year that my two children looked clean, but they would look clean for those photos. And so we kind of measure our joy alongside this sense of management and control, this expectation and this pressure, and we sing joy to the world. You know, we gather together, we merrily sing joy to the world, and yet we're arguing about food and about presents and about who we're going to spend Christmas Day with. And we long for joyful contentment, and yet we see violence and fear and anxiety in the world, but also in our own families. These things happen right at the center of who we are. We are overwrought, we are overtired, we are overfull. We grasp and we grasp and we never have enough. And how can I dare to even stand up and speak about joy in a world that enacts violence against one another, in a world that enacts violence against the whenua? And are we as Christians just so disconnected from the reality of the world that we're delusional when we talk about joy? I don't think so. I don't think we are. And the reason I don't think that is because just as in that first Christmas, our joy is a joy that says life will be born in the midst of all of that. Life will come. The womb will be filled. The manger will be filled. And that kind of joy is God's joy that gathers us in, that continues to gather us and gather us and gather us and gather all of us. And that is the Christmas joy that I want to speak about this morning. The joy that we find in the Christmas narrative and its story is both expected and unexpected. It offers, it's offered to this huge range of people and it's a tangible joy. It's a joy that cries. It's a physical joy. It's a child. But it's also an intangible proclamation about the way the world could be depending on which of the four Gospels you open. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, it's divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament begins with the account of the arrival of Jesus God amongst humans. And the first four books of it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hold the horse while I jump on. That's how I learned the order of those ones. I never want to hold a horse or jump onto one. So, But there it is. Uh, depending on which one you open depends on exactly where the story begins, um, so in the once upon a time. And rather than focusing on one moment in one of those stories today, we are going to do a little bit of a grocery grab through the Gospels and through the story, because rather than focusing on one moment or one person, I want to zoom out into the broad scope of the story and to remind us all that Christmas is not just angels singing. Christmas is also violent peasant shepherds. Christmas is also a widowed Moabites. Christmas is also a foreign prostitute. Christmas is also a selection of rich astronomers. Christmas is also a doubting man of the cloth. It is a barren woman. It is an unknown teenager in the back of beyond. And it is a heavenly host that have gathered not for war, but to proclaim with great joy the victory of God come amongst humankind. It is a Christmas without ham 
And that's important because Jewish people don't eat ham. It is a Christmas without tinsel. It is a Christmas without eco gift wrapping. Nobody has bought a goat on your behalf. But the manger is filled with a crying baby. And if you've ever sung, you know, um, away in a manger, you know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. If you are a parent, a grandparent, or anyone child adjacent, you know that no human ever achieved that, and Jesus certainly would have cried. This Christmas, the Christmas we talk about, is a Christmas in the time of colonizing oppression. It is a Christmas where leaders cling so tightly to power with such fear that they are prepared to slaughter infants. It is a Christmas where the main characters end up as refugees. That is the joy of the first Christmas. And so we rewind the years together to return back to that Christmas and we invite God to upend our understanding, to offer us a different kind of joy this Christmas, one that is much better than a perfectly baked cake or the present you found on Christmas Eve. Let's pray. God, you have gathered us into your love generously and indiscriminately. You have offered us Jesus, and Jesus, you have come. As we turn our hearts towards joy, would you be present in your spirit with us, reminding us of the great happy ending towards which we face. Fill our hearts with a joy that refuses to bow before Herod and finds itself bowing before a baby in an animal feed trough. This is the kind of joy we seek, God. Be with us as we seek it, we ask in Jesus' name. If you open the book of Matthew, which is the first one, it actually begins a very long time before Jesus. It starts with a whakapapa. It starts with a family tree. Now, in that family tree, there are a whole lot of names. One of those names is Rahab. Now, Rahab is a foreign prostitute. She is the kind of woman who is explicitly off limits to a good Jewish boy. And yet, there she is in the family tree of Jesus. It names another woman, who's a Moabitess, therefore off-limits, and a widow, called Ruth. It names Solomon, who is the son of David, and he is not David's first son, and he is not even the son of the first wife. He is a king who will rise and fall spectacularly in his service of the Jewish people. The story of Matthew starts with a long list of names, and amongst those names, we are reminded that however unimportant we feel, our name is a name in a list of names. Our name is a, is a part of a long line of imperfect people who are mostly trying to do their best. And we are included in the whakapapa of Jesus, just as all those anonymous names are up there. We are included not by biology, but by faith because of the life and death of Jesus. And that is what allows us to proclaim good news in dark places where Herod sits on a throne. That is the good news that signals joy for the whole world. And we, as names in a list, are included in that. The book of both Mark and Luke begin with the account of John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin. And the book of Luke starts not, neither of them start with the virgin teenager, they start with an older couple. A couple who have had years of childlessness in a society that sees infertility and barrenness as a sign of God's displeasure. So much so that the writer of Luke goes to special pains to point out that they are righteous 
and blameless before God. Elizabeth lives in a culture where, as one commentator says, her womb is her destiny. Zechariah is a priest. He's a man of the cloth. And he has prayed so long for a child and had that prayer unanswered for so long that even when he receives an angelic visitation, he's not sure God can actually answer his prayer. This is a very ordinary couple doing their best to be faithful and they are in many ways the first recipients of the joy of Christmas. Before Jesus is even a conceived Jesus, they are reminded that God hears, that God's hearing is active and that God is a miracle worker. And at this point, we start to get this inkling of the kind of joy that might be on offer in this story, an unexpected joy. Before Jesus is even on the scene, we've met a couple whose society has judged, whose prayers have been unanswered, and a man of the cloth who really can't believe that God can answer prayer. I feel like that feels like a very reassuring place <laughs> to start the Christmas narrative because perhaps our lives also are full of prayers that have gone so long unanswered that even if an angel appeared to us in the deli section of Countdown, we would have trouble believing that God had heard us. And if that's the case, then you have a place in this story. So we have this beautiful holy priestly setting where Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies and Gabriel turns up. And it's all, you know, bells and smells and tinkles and whistles and all of those things. And from that, we flick to an unknown corner of a very small town that no one pays attention to in Scripture, Nazareth. We may substitute Ashburton. That could help us. And that same angel, six months later, appears in the middle of a very ordinary, no special kind of a day to a probable teenager and announces to her that she is the favorite of God. Now, she's understandably perplexed by this interruption to her day, only to be more perplexed when the angel announces that she's going to have a child. Now, at this point, she presents a fairly significant barrier in this story. I would say more significant than Zechariah and Elizabeth's infertility. She's a virgin. And as she's a teenager, she knows how babies come about. So she's like, mm, I can't be having a baby here. But the angel explains to her that there will be a miraculous element to her um, conception. The conception will come about, says the angel, by the overshadowing of God's creative power, by the Spirit. And if you are familiar with the text of the Bible, this might be ringing some little um, bells that you've heard before at the very beginning of the story of the, of the Bible at, at the opening of Genesis, where the world is nothing, where it's formless and barren, and, and the Spirit of God comes and hovers over the nothingness. And out of that hovering, the nothingness is filled. And it's not just filled once, it's filled and filled and filled and that filling is the potential of all that will come to where we are and beyond, all that will come. And so we have this sense of the spirit that hovers over the empty womb, over the dark place, over the unseen and fills it. And that filling is potential for the whole rest of the story for everybody else. Before the first chapter of the book of Luke is even halfway through, and it is a very long chapter, two empty wombs are unexpectedly filled. Two secret places, the holy place and the back end of nowhere, have been visited by God. 
God does not set the scene for this story on a stage with a king's pregnancy announcement, with a coronation, with an army takeover, all of which might have been the expectation. No, far away from the intention of those in power, from far away from the important, from the platform, from the sparkly, from the rich, God is at work there. And God is gathering in to that story all of these unexpected people who will be the voice that proclaims joy and salvation has come. This joy is unexpected and it is not a joy that answers all of our hard questions and it's not a joy that people won't question the motives of and it's not the joy that people won't try and pick apart the story of. It is a joy that can be misunderstood but is a joy that holds in the storm. Next, we meet the shepherds. Now, again, if you're a reader of the text, you'll be like, oh, shepherds, yes, and David is the shepherd king, and right through the Old Testament, we have all these lovely descriptions of God as the good shepherd, the one who shepherds the flock, and Micah, it talks about, and he will shepherd his flock in peace. And so we have all these wonderful um, ringing bells about shepherds, and that's awesome, because that's supposed to be there too. But the thing we sometimes miss in our generation is who the shepherds were for those people in their generation. Because actually, in the time of Jesus, shepherds were generally violent peasants. On the whole, they were hired hands. And so therefore, the story of this birth is set in a dangerous place, under a dangerous and violent ruler, with God's disclosure about the divine birth via angels, welcomes the least likely people you would expect or probably want to turn up to visit you on the maternity ward. And the angels gather to proclaim glad tidings of great joy for all people. Now this proclamation is lovely, right? We're like, oh, glad tidings, great joy, all the people. Yes, 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 yes. However, what the angels are doing here and what the text is doing here that we sometimes miss is a direct riff off of Roman propaganda. So what happens actually at that point in the story and in um, countries and colonized people under the Romans is that glad tidings and great joy are announced with the birth of an heir to an emperor, with the becoming of age, or with his accession to the throne. So glad tidings of great joy come to the shepherds and they completely upend the kingdom whose peace So the peace of Rome comes by violent rule and oppression. That's how peace comes. So Rome is the the conquering, peace-bringing nation who brings brings peace by violence and oppression. The kingdom that the angels announce with those exact same words is a kingdom that comes not by violence and not by oppression, and it comes to the poor. The commentators of the text say things like this, Caesar's goodwill has to be won. God's goodwill is not won by anything that humans have done and it ensures a grace that leads to salvation. They talk about the remarkableness of the angel's message that it is Christ. In this moment, this is what the angels are saying. It is Christ, not Caesar, who brings peace. It is Jesus' birthday, not Augustus' birthday that separates the epochs of human history. That's what's happening here. That's the kind of joy they're talking about. It's a political joy. It is a joy that tears down the dividing line between who is in and who is out. It establishes inclusion for the outsider. It proclaims the kingship of a new way and it announces in that new way that there is acceptance for all, that every rung of the ladder has not just been included but completely removed 
because there is no ladder of hierarchy before Jesus, and that is wild joy. That is a joy that deeply upends and ought to challenge the way that we share joy. It ought to ask us, who is at our table? Who do we say goodwill has come to? It unabashedly announces a kingdom that is in direct conflict with any kingdom of oppression, any kingdom that oppresses, any kingdom that excludes the poor, any kingdom that excludes the culturally different, any kingdom that excludes the woman, the old, the barren, or the over-fertile. But it isn't finished because there are more characters in this story. There are more gathered in. Then we meet the Magi. Now, if you've sung the carol incorrectly, you'll think they're from a strange land called Orientar. But they're not from Orientar. These mystery characters and their impractical gifts, the gifts are actually beautiful and have deep meaning, but we don't have time for that today. But they could have also bought a casserole and some nappies, is all I'm saying. These Magi represent the rich, the foreigner, the one who is not searching for God, but who is prepared to have their world disrupted, to seek and find and to lay down their crown and their riches before an insignificant baby that offers them no special platform. The joy of Jesus is not a promise of popularity or gold or glamour. It is just Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the joy that is on offer in our story. This beautiful, poor man who is God, who will love us so deeply that even death will not be able to contain him. So the Magi. And then there's more. Simeon and Anna. We meet Simeon and Anna when um, Jesus is taken to the temple to be dedicated. And this Christmas, I am just in love with Simeon and Anna. Simeon, I think, is the first recorded account of FOMO in the scriptures. So, Simeon is so desperate to see God's salvation come. He's so deeply dedicated that God's like, dude, you will not miss out. I promise you will definitely see the Messiah. And when Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus walk in, he's like, yes, now I can die. You know, like I did not miss out. That's Simeon. He recognizes Jesus, and that is God's promise. And then there is Anna. I feel like I'm growing into Anna. I'm possibly already Anna already. She's 84. She's a widow, so I'm neither of those things. It's good. Uh, But she spends her whole life at the temple. She's that woman who's always at church. And I'm like, yeah, I get it, Anna. I'm always at church too. I just love it. So over-enthusiastic. She's that woman who's like, oh, are we going to worship like this? Are we going to want to have help with the communion? And I've bought some flowers. And she's that woman who just loves being in the temple. And when she sees Jesus, she becomes a voice to proclaim salvation. See, none of us are too old or too young or too unimportant or too this or too that, too rich, too violent, too poor, too unseen. But Anna and Simeon's lives remind us that sometimes the promises take a long time to come. But the one who promises, promises. This Anna, who will not shut up about God, I do like her. So it is a joy that gathers in. It is a joy that makes room for us. It is a joy that proclaims, oh, you came, and we're so glad, and there's room at the table for you. Look at the baby. 
This is a joy that does not promise solutions to what we, what we want. It does not promise us the thing we want. It offers us the thing we need. And the thing we really need, the thing we most need, and the only thing that anchors us, I think, and holds us in real joy and deep joy is this. God is with us. God shows solidarity with us. God is the one who is with us and who is mighty to save. And that's what Advent is, right? It is the promise of the coming, the coming of Jesus, the Jesus who is with us now and the Jesus who will come again. And that is the only joy, the only joy that this story offers. And as I've been thinking about this and writing this for you guys, I've been thinking about this beautiful verse in Zephaniah 3.17, which I'm going to read in Te Reo Māori because the joy comes to this whenua too. The message is for this whenua as well. My te reo needs a lot of work, so bear with me. Zephaniah 3.17. Ki roto a ihua tō atua, i a koe, a he nui ia, mana e whakaora, ka koa ia, ka hari ki a koe, ka ata noho ia i runga i tōna aroha, ka whakamana mana ia, ka waiata ki a koe, the Lord your God, is in your midst. A warrior who gives victory, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I really like the idea of a God who sings over me with loud singing. It doesn't say tuneful, it says loud. See, far away from the expectations of the Jewish people, who, whose, whose imagining was much more in line with the kind of rule, the kind of glad tidings of great joy that the Roman kingdom brought, far away from that, far away from the perfectly decorated halls of power and the tables of feasting, a woman gives birth and heaven rejoices. And the sky splits open with a star so unusual and strange that it will distract the Magi a host of angels turns up to shepherds who will hear, who will believe, who will go, who will see, who will rejoice, and who will spill back out to proclaim. Elizabeth's barren womb has been filled. Mary's virgin womb has been filled. And a cacophony of voices that no one expects proclaim the strange and wonderful joy that God's salvation brings. The final gospel of John opens with an affirmation of who Jesus is, an affirmation that Jesus is God. And God, the God, from the very beginning of creation, has come, flesh and blood, to wander the streets of Galilee, to grow up as an Egyptian refugee, to refuse power and fame in exchange for an inclusion that will demand his life. Could there be any better news that God has not abandoned the ship? God has come to captain the ship through the storm and take it not just to safety, but to its final destination, which is love. Though it cost the captain his life. See, joy is resistance and revolution. The joy of that first Christmas narrative throws down a kind of gauntlet for us. It is a widow to our joy. 
And our joy is so often connected to things being done our way with our people the way we'd like. But joy can be an act of resistance. Joy can be steeped in the reality of the world's darkness, but steeped deeper still, anchored deeper still into a deeper reality about the trajectory of the world, a world that has begun in love and that is heading towards love as its final destination. And I am learning in my extroverted, joyful way that I do not need to be embarrassed for joy, that my joy is not shallow, that my joy is anchored in the fact that God came, that God is here and that God will come again and I can lean the full weight of myself into that joy. In Proverbs 31, it talks about a woman who can laugh at the days to come. And when the world around us is fraught with fear and anxiety and hopelessness, joy is more than a saccharine head in the sand. La, 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 I'm just pretending it's not all happening. Joy is not happiness. Joy is deeper than that. It is a tenacity that knows and proclaims that Herod is a straw man, that injustice has, has its day and will have its day coming. Joy does not deny difficulty. Joy adds an and yet because we know the beginning and that gives us joy. We know the ending and that gives us joy in the present. The joy of the Christmas narrative is subversive. It offers a revolution where foreign kings and rejected peasants stand side by side in wonder and worship, where both throw down their crowns, literal and proverbial, before a baby born in poverty who will be a refugee. There is an act of resistance and joy that identifies its Messiah as a crying baby in an animal trough who has nothing and yet everything to offer us. Later on in the Bible, it will say that because of the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. The joy is this, that we belong and that none of us, none of us stand on higher ground. None of us stand closer. None of us are more special than the babies that were dedicated at the 9 a.m. Um, or than the, than the meth addict who abuses us for change when we walk past them. The love of God is entirely, ridiculously indiscriminate, and there is a crazy joy in being loved that way. To imagine that kind of love, the love that waits with longing for you to come home, that waits to hear the sound of you in the driveway, of your key in the lock, a love that will wrap you in its arms, a love that will rejoice over you with loud singing when you win, and a love that will sit next to you in ashes when you fail. Imagine the reality of actually knowing that love, of living into that love, of feeling that love in your palms because that is what joy is. That is what joy is. And if we can have a taste of that kind of joy, I don't think it will matter how spectacularly we fail or how high we are placed on a platform because that joy is the thing that invites us to kneel with our face in the dirt. That says to us the only platform that matters is the one at the end of the manger.